Robert Falcon Ouellette is an educator, a musician, a researcher, was a member of the Canadian Navy, now he's a warrant officer in the Army Reserves, and he was a Liberal MP for the province of Manitoba, defeated in the last election. But first I have to ask you, welcome, it's good to see you, because we had a... <laughs> We had occasion to run into each other at all sorts of events. And uh, I always found you to be very open-minded and very willing to embrace ideas uh, from all sorts of quarters. I'm wondering if that was a strength or a liability in politics. Uh, some days it was a strength and certainly it was <laughs> a liability. Uh, that is for sure. Uh, because often in politics, you know, the party structure really wants you to conform and your colleagues want you to conform. So that's kind of, right. uh, it was always kind of a friction point in Ottawa for me. But, uh, um, you know, being a university professor and a, a bit of a free, free uh, thinker, I think it's important, though, to have people in the Westminster parliamentary system uh, kind of push different ideas. You know, they have people in government, uh, and I mean the executive branch, who do those mm -hmm. other types of things, but you also need people um, in, in Parliament who are willing to kind of be a counterbalance to test ideas, to challenge what is being, being put forward or what's being done in society. And because it, if you don't challenge anything, it never changes. And it kind of keeps going on the same old way that we've been doing things for a long time. And sometimes those things don't work. Exactly. I always felt this as a journalist, and I feel it more now, which is we don't allow people to change their minds. If somebody changes their mind on an issue, we go, oh my God, a 180, a 360. Oh, he's, you know, reversed his entire position. This is terrible. When in fact, we should be encouraging people based on new information, new perspectives, new ideas to say, I've had a change of heart here. It's or even, really sometimes, uh, even sometimes to say, I don't know. Right. That would be the most <laughs> important thing, to be able to answer a question that way. So uh, do, you, do you miss the, the Ottawa political scene? Uh, of course, uh, I, I miss it. I miss being able to influence policy to improve the lives of the people where I was representing. I actually, I'm actually quite proud about the work I was able to do. Um, you know, I wasn't able to do everything. I mm. was only, only so many hours in a day and I discovered uh, a maximum uh, limit. Like I was working 100 uh, plus hours a week, 120 sometimes, just at, by the end I was exhausted, but the bags under my bags, you could see uh, you know, the plug <laughs> is going and, and I was looking a little haggard and, uh, you know, old. Um, but, uh, you know, I actually felt, uh, you know, if you can actually make a difference. Like I wouldn't, you know, I know that I was talking to some colleagues and they felt that they were making a difference, that they were kind of like, why am I here? And some of them left after their first term. They said, you know, I've mm -hmm. met and, you know, I'm, I'm not really interested by this lifestyle. But I actually really think that politicians, if you get, in, you know, if you push, you know, and you, you know, you pull and you work with people as well and listen to different ideas, you can kind of get the change you want. And, you know, I examples of that, it's like the Indigenous languages in the House of Commons, like, you know, it took, uh, you know, a challenge, a point of order, and then, you know, a study by the, uh, you know, the procedure rules committee, and then a, a report. And then finally, the House, after two years, adopts uh, rules, changes the ecosystem of the House of Commons, and gets unanimous consent from all the parties to allow translation of Indigenous languages, which gives an advantage to, uh, politically, to certain 
people in the House to be able to communicate a different message politically. Uh, and, you know, people gave up some of their power, but that took, you know, also working with different people and, and you know, and trying to push and to be kind and to be gentle. You, you know, you said, you know, I like to listen to different ideas, of course, because if you don't hear someone's perspective, you're not going to be able to work together. I think most people that come to Ottawa as members of parliament or senators even uh, come on a mission. They do believe they can make change. They do believe that the system ultimately works despite its frustrations. Do you still think that? Yes, 100%. But I also believe that there are many MPs that actually feel that they have no personal power in that system, that they are not listened to. Uh, that they uh, are not uh, not thought of highly by the power structures of people who are mm -hmm. in position higher authority, and uh, you know it's unfortunate. But then, you know, the question is, you know, your pe people who are uh, do you accept that, or do you continue to find ways to maneuver, uh, you know, your ideas, the ideas from your citizens forward in that environment, and. Um, you know, some people have been very successful at it, like Michael Chong, uh, you know, the Democratic mm -hmm. Reform Bill. Others, you know, their bills die <laughs> and never get debated in on the floor at all. So it's, you know, it's quite a difficult thing. The whole theory of, as Pierre Elliott Trudeau said, the backbencher is a nobody uh, <laughs> when you're 100 feet off Parliament Hill. That is, however, unfortunately, still true as far as the power system in Ottawa sees it, perhaps yeah, but not you the can make them nervous. You can make <laughs> your power structures nervous. It's, and it's good a little, like to keep people on edge a little bit. You don't want to do it, like obviously, you know, we have uh, parties and, and everyone's supposed to be working together and you don't want to vote against your own party all the time. Um, but you can, you can hold your own side to account and make them think about a position they're about to take and and how that might translate and how you vote. But if you always give in every time, then you're a pushover. Don't so be a pushover. Stand up do yourself. Stand you, up. You, you know, like, rise up. You know, don't <laughs> accept uh, the status quo if you're unhappy with it. I agree with that. But do you think it also led to your demise? You lost the last election. Is that because the party didn't come out for you? Is that because voters oh, were sending a message? Uh, the party is the the problem is my the writing is like a a NDP stronghold, right? And uh, you know never been lost to the NDP except for the time I arrived, and I still had the vote up. Uh, you know I was thirty uh, five, uh, uh, I was you know thirty seven percent, and so I was uh, you know usually in every election we're getting around uh, you know eleven percent. Um, you know, and I had it up to 55 and then down to 37. So I was still doing quite well. I think people appreciate it in the riding. Mm -hmm. But then, end of the day, also the party structure is so strong. Uh, the government had their own challenges during the election uh, with some, uh, you know, some major political gaffes that were going on throughout the campaign. And I think that did not translate well on the ground for people saying, who am I going to vote for? Well, how do you deal with that? Uh, I've never sat where you um, sit as a, an elected member of parliament, but you guys look around and see the, the we charity scandal and giving, you know, all of that. Like, what do you do? Do you have in your caucus, do you, does anybody stand up and say, what the hell are you guys doing? Or do you just keep it to yourself? I, there are people that stand up for sure. 
Um, but I also think people put their hand on their forehead and they kind of go, this is, uh, this is unfortunate. Uh, they wonder what sometimes people are thinking. Um, you know, we ask that, uh, you know, people do, uh, you know, the people when they consider different perspectives on a political issue, um, but also how it might, uh, how it might look in the public and, and what's going on. And I think, but actually overall, actually, I'm going to have to be honest. I think people are actually quite, um, good. Even, you know, even when you challenge authority, you know, I don't think anyone's, uh, you know, bad people in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. One of the prime minister's offices are bad. I think they're actually good people who are doing good things and they have to make a decision. And I, you know, it's always about that, you know, you've got the cover and you just need to pull it a little bit closer to your side to represent your people a little bit more to make sure your issue or, or, or the people you represent are, are looked after are considered in the final decision. And I think that is, you know, what happens. Um, there are stuff you can, you can control and stuff you, you cannot control. Like right now, you know, like if I was thinking about like, we're looking at the pandemic, you know, as an MP, like there's not a lot a member of parliament can do except for standing up in the house of commons as the opposition and shaking your fist. The government's not doing this or this or this. But I actually think that's uh, perhaps not maybe the role of, you know, you know, second guessing the executive in a pandemic in a major crisis. You know, what the parliamentary system should be doing right now is planning for the future. What is post pandemic? All these MPs in every committee, there's over 30 committees and in the Senate as well. Everyone should be sitting down and planning a foresight exercise. What do we want Canada to look like? in five, 10 years. What will it look like? What will the international order look like? What will finance look like? What will the healthcare system look like? How are these going to change? How do we plan for that future? And doing those studies today, not when we're uh, post-pandemic. But that's Robert, I, I agree with you a thousand percent, except no government wants that committee to sit and be critical while they're in the middle of it. No government <laughs> wants the... <laughs> it's not, it's actually, I don't think it's actually about criticism right now about what the government's doing. I'm actually talking about, like, when all the jobs are gone, mm -hmm. when, when the pandemic is over, everyone's been vaccinated in a year and a half, hopefully, and the pandemic is done, and we're trying to get back to business. What type of infrastructure are we going to build? Where is that infrastructure going to come from? When the, where is the technology? Is it going to come from China? Are we going to build manufacturing here in Canada ourselves? What are the jobs that people are going to be doing? Uh, what's the healthcare system going to be looking like in the long term? What were the failings? Um, you know, but also what do we actually want in, 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 in the extreme long term? What do we expect Canada to look like in five and 10 years? And, and you can be doing this on the international scene, the national defense, uh, you know, and it's not even criticizing the government about today. It's actually really looking to the future about what Canada might actually look like. And you and know better than most that governments have four-year attention spans yes. because they're trying to get elected next time. They don't yes. want to have that conversation. They're going to throw out theories about infrastructure and restructuring the healthcare system. But nowhere is that conversation seriously being allowed to happen in Ottawa, in this country today. I think some of the business groups on the exterior are, are having those conversations in webinars and in Zoom meetings and all of that, but there, yes. there is no focal point for that. No, but that's, I think that's the role of the MP. And I think if you, 
you don't have to make it a partisan issue. Exactly. Like I, did, I did a, uh, you know, with Doug Olson on the health committee, we did a study on the meth crisis and the drug, opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. across. And, you know, we discovered that there are problems in the healthcare system. We discovered that, you know, Stats Canada and Health Canada don't really work together, don't keep statistics, don't have central database with all this information about drug use and what's going on. So we're making policy decisions kind of a little bit blindly and in the dark. And the government said, yeah, those are good recommendations. We're working towards, the, you know, the deputy minister said, we're now working towards setting up a, a data sharing center on, on health statistics in order to be able to, to you know, to uh, fill that need. Uh, that's kind of the work, but it's nonpartisan. It's not stuff that I actually believe the government's actually, I don't think the government's, you know, maybe perhaps 10 years ago they might care under Stephen Harper, but I, I don't really think, uh, you know, the government today would be too upset if people were, MPs were going out and studying, like, you know, what's the world going to look like in two years? What should our policy be towards China in two years' time? But we don't. We, we have to answer that question now. That's my point, uh, that if you try to have any of those discussions today in order to plan the path for five years down, yeah. it becomes the government implicitly sees that as a criticism of them. It's dismissed as the rantings of the opposition, and it doesn't matter which party is where. The same thing occurs. It is very hard to have long-term thinking in government that isn't is. considered or seen as a political attack. But even actually government, if to be honest, is actually very good at crisis management. You know, every, you know, whether, what <laughs> doesn't matter what government it is, when the crisis happens, everyone's eyes turn towards mm -hmm. the for the day, for the week, for the news cycle. And it is a very short term uh, way of, of doing things. And then, you know, there's the hope that the civil servants and others are taking care of the long-term issues. And sometimes they are, and sometimes they aren't. They're not. <laughs> but, you know, we, we, we should be thinking about that. And I, I just, you, you know, there are huge uh, challenges that we're going to face as a society, even like related to the environment and how mm -hmm. this is all going to work out. Like right now for the next year and a half, no one's going to talk about any of these things because we're focused on survival, uh, the mental health problems and, 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 you know, the, and all the deaths and the deaths of many seniors. I don't know if you've seen your Facebook feed in, in a while, but I, you know, every yeah. day people who are dying, not from COVID from other issues, uh, but that are know, being might, ignored. They're being ignored, you know, but it's, mm -hmm. it's sad, you know, you put down my condolences, but a lot of people are passing away and there's going to be a lot of, a lot of trauma related to that. How are we going to deal with that? How are we dealing with it today? That, uh, so we're focused a lot on that, but I really think, you know, parliament should be, you know, someone <laughs> should be looking yeah. to the future. Maybe the Senate should be looking <laughs> to the future because you're a little less partisan. Yes, we're, we're trying, believe me. We can't get committees up and running either. I want to ask you about a couple of other things, and, and you're sitting there in Winnipeg as, as we talked today, which has the worst numbers in the country right now. What does it feel like from where you sit? Do you feel like you're in the middle of a pandemic crisis? Are you locked in your house? Are you functioning? What's, what's your life like? Uh, we are locked in our houses, yeah. Um, you go out for uh, some groceries, but the groceries are, you know, rather restrained, only 25% capacity. Mm -hmm. 
you, know, you can't go to restaurants. Uh, you can't go visit friends anymore. Uh, you can only really go for a walk and, and kind of watch a film and, and try and do some work at home. Uh, but, you know, I think it's actually very worrying. Um, and I think people are actually quite upset, to be honest, here in Manitoba. Uh, you know, we saw what happened in the springtime in Ontario and Quebec with the seniors' homes. And we watched the numbers, and our numbers were extremely flat. They were just kind of going across, you know, like almost one, a few cases. And then, you know, we didn't have anything. We tried to open up the economy and had people coming from outdoor, outside, into the province, a lot of internal travel in the West. And it's come back to bite us. We're paying the price today. We have senior homes where we had ambulances outdoor, outside. Uh, I had a friend, her father, um, uh, was in his senior's home and, and uh, you know, he was not being cared for. Uh, there was no staff on the floor at one point. She had gotten permission to be there as a volunteer. She was self-isolating every night uh, in a hotel room in order to go in to look after him. And she ended up looking after, out for other people. Uh, seniors who only speak sometimes, you know, forgot a little bit of their English and you know, were only able to communicate in Portuguese. You know, they immigrated to Canada 60 years ago, worked their whole lives, and no one was there to even give them water or change their diapers. You know, her father was lying on the floor for six hours when she found him. Uh, you know, these, this is going on in our country, and I think people are really upset about it. Um, uh, they're upset with the government. They're upset that we have no contact tracing yeah. in Manitoba or it's not very well done. Uh, That's my issue. I go back to Saskatchewan and I get a test and I get a result six, seven days later. It doesn't help, right? Like there's some basic things that don't seem to be working in one of the wealthiest G7 countries in the world and we can't deliver the basics. Yeah, it's, it seems to be a, a lot of patchwork um, uh, that's going on. So every, everyone's doing their own little thing and not very much uh, central coordination, but that's how our federation works. And people don't like their toes being tread on either by the uh, <laughs> central federal government. No one wants to be, you know, the West, you know, Kenny, Mo, and uh, Pallister don't want to be told by Trudeau what they should be doing. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to work together and you know, this is part of the problem. Uh, you know, right, Manitoba right now has the worst cases of COVID in North America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even is, even Anthony is, Fauci is worried. <laughs> <laughs> Fauci is worried. Like, I, yeah. like, I think we're going to forget about Christmas. Like, to be honest, um, yeah. you know, I was able to go out and do my shopping, uh, you know, a little bit early. I planned out in September to go out and pick up some gifts for the kids while they were on sale and, you know, get some stuff and I think everyone else you know it's too bad it's you're not going to be able to do it and you know it's not so bad for the people who can order from Amazon but you know if you're a very low income worker you know it's going to be a it's going to be a tight Christmas for a lot of people well and And you're also not supporting your local guys if you're buying everything on Amazon you know we want to go and support the local business people but you can't get there (laughs) no Uh, All the local businesses are shut down here in Manitoba. It's all, the only thing open is essential services. And, you know, Walmart is an essential service because they have a grocery store, so they're lucky. But uh, but they also sell other stuff, so maybe people can go in there. It's kind of packed, you know, and it's going to get worse because we're going to be indoors for the winter. 
I, I was looking interestingly at a move by the premier to actually enforce because that's part of what I'm thinking. I mean, if you've got 200 people uh, gathered in a bar drinking and not masking, you know, go in and find them, shut the place down. I, we seem to not be sending strong enough messages. So the premier has now hired some private security to yes. enforce laws and, and people are reacting to it going, whoa, whoa, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Like they can't seem to win for losing. Well, I, I think it's a good idea what they're doing. Um, you know, frankly, I think like even we had uh, Thanksgiving and, you know, we all knew the cases I, you know, you could predict the cases were going to explode and they did explode right afterwards because families were getting together. It just takes one person who's infected and they infect uh, 12, 13, 20 other people. You know, my Thanksgiving was held outdoors in a socially distanced uh, way. You know, it was freezing cold. Everyone had jackets on and the turkey <laughs> came up, baking hot. And, you know, at some point, you know, granddad said, you know, can, you know, like, can we go indoors? And I said, well, you know, maybe it's time to go home then. Uh, you know, we spent some time together, you know, we enjoyed ourselves outdoors and, uh, you know, good to see you. Yeah. No, it is going to be. Sick, I get to enjoy, I, he's not sick and I get to enjoy his conversation by right. telephone uh, for another few years. So you know, at so least it's something. It's always a trade-off. Yeah. I want to ask you about some other issues that, and because I think you're continuing these causes. You You were explaining that you've now... You used to be part of the Royal Canadian Navy and you were part of the Naval Reserve, but you've switched over to the uh, Army now where you've attained status as a warrant officer. What drives that part of you? Where'd that come from? Uh, well, that's, uh, that was when I was a kid. My, gra my grandfather uh, was in the uh, Merchant Marine. He joined when he was 16 during the Second World War, uh, sailed the convoys through the Battle of the Atlantic, was torpedoed, I believe, two or three times uh, in, into the dark waters of the North Atlantic, uh, plucked out and survived. Um, and so I joined Sea Cadets and <laughs> Navy League Cadets. Actually, I've worn a uniform since I've been 10 years old. And then so, you know, into the cadet movement and then into the Naval Reserves, into the regular forces with the 22nd Regiment, into the uh, medical field for a few years during the war in Afghanistan. And then uh, I joined back into the Naval Reserves and, uh, you know, became a prophet U of M. But I always uh, kind of, it's, uh, it, I'm, it's something you just can't get out of your blood. I, you know, at one point, you know, it was kind of a little bit difficult to combine the life of an MP with that of going down once a week on an evening to serve in the Naval Reserves. And they asked me, well, maybe you want to consider leaving. I said, I've been wearing this uniform since I'm 10. I'm, I'm going all the way until you, I'm literally kicked out at age 60. <laughs> a few more years in me uh, left uh, I will say thank you for your service because when I was in Afghanistan, we saw a lot of people that came up from the reserve. They were teachers, they were doctors, lawyers, you know, the whole thing. And they they went and served in Afghanistan, guys who hadn't really been in uniform, uh, certainly not in a combat situation for a very long time. So it's much appreciated when people step up and do that. Well, I think it's a fun thing. Like there are great people, great men, great women, uh, some good camaraderie. It's a, it's a change of pace. You know, three, you know, a month ago, I was out on the firing range uh, <laughs> shooting my uh, semi-automatic rifle. Uh, you know, I passed, uh, so that was good. <laughs> you know, I'm a little out, I was a little out of uh, shape uh, on what I was doing, but, you know, I did quite well. And, 
And, you know, I just, you know, you're just trying is something, a different experience, you know, and also I get to talk to a lot of young people, a lot of uh, 19, 20 year olds, young men, young women, uh, find out their dreams, what it is that they're doing, why are they serving? Some are just trying something out. It was kind of a, always kind of a dream for themselves to be in the military and, you know, they just want to test it and see if they want to go on or maybe they'll go do something else. Uh, some are just supporting their families with a, with a job uh, because it's a way of, you know, you know, earning a bit of an income to support their, their, their life and, you know, the kids that some of them have. And it's, uh, it's pretty cool talking to a lot of the people. I enjoy the social aspect a lot as well. You're about to turn 44. So you're, you're now the old guy and they're the young guy. <laughs> yes, I am the old man. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> 20 years ago, I was the young, uh, young buck. Uh, you know, they used to make fun of me uh, in the Vandus. They called me poof. Because? Uh, because I was so young. I was actually one of the youngest sergeants. I was 22 and I was a sergeant and they had a, you, we had the big bearskin hats and I had yeah. this, oh, anyways, the old sergeant said, that's a puff and, uh, and I'm going to call you puff because you're so young and so, you know, uh, so colorful, you know, we'll let you, uh, <laughs> you, you've been a lot of places. Now you're the son of an English mother and a Korean Métis father, um, your mom was, was English and Cree? No, mom, uh, just uh, pure English. Uh, pure England. English. And she your dad off, was uh, Cree. She came off the boat, but she came off the plane. Yeah, she came off the plane. Uh, your father was from Red Pheasant First Nation. That's uh, near North Battleford. And you were primarily raised by your mother. And, and I, you seem to end up in an awful lot of places, uh, including an elite private school. Your mom somehow got a loan to get you in there. She must have been a creative woman. Uh, she, I think she was actually a little insane. Um, <laughs> she's not alive anymore, but I will say, you know, in a loving way, she was yeah. kind of crazy. Um, you know, I was in a grade seven and I was failing out of my classes. I wasn't doing very well. Um, I, you know, I was getting in fights, you know, we had some gang activity. I had to have, you know, kind of, you know, you know you'd have to defend yourself in the hallways mm -hmm. after school. And I think she saw, like I was in cadets and she saw a potential in me and she kind of saw this ad in the newspaper, the Calgary Heralds. And it said, you know, Strathcona Tweedsmere, uh, private school, you know, uh, K to 12. And so she's like, uh, or one to 12, yeah. accepting students and applications. So she rounded up 60 bucks, took me down and, and, uh, you know, I took all the tests and, you know, she, and I remember actually the night before, like we went to Kmart to get some <laughs> clothes and, uh, you know, I got a nice dress shirt with a collar and it was cotton actually from Egypt and a tie, uh, and, uh, I Whoa. got some hammer <laughs> pants, gray MC hammer pants. that were kind of like, you know, the, you know, puffy around uh, the bottom, like, <laughs> I got some Air Jordans because my mom had borrowed some cash from my grandmother and we filled up the car with that cash and we drove up to the school. It's on an estate in the south end of the city and uh, with its own little lake. And, uh, you know, we get out there, I take the tests and I did my very best. And I had a teacher kind of coach me how to take a multiple choice test. And, mm -hmm. and during the interview, uh, you know, my mom out there had, on the way out, she said, you know, if anyone asks you questions, you know, can you, you know, speak clearly? And I was like, oh, maybe. <laughs> no, no, you stopped. You can't mumble. 
You, you can't mumble, Robert. Okay, mom, I won't mumble. Can you say yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am? Yes, ma'am, I will speak and enunciate clearly. Thank you. And then I went back to being my sullen uh, self. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I was in the interview and, you know, they said, oh, we see you, you know, like, you know, the head of the department, uh, it was Mr. Walls actually said, uh, you know, we see that you're, you know, you like to play a trumpet, you know, uh, and I was taking band class. Everyone was forced to take band class. And I said, right. yes, love, yes, sir. I love to play the trumpet. And uh, good, good. We're starting a band program next year. We'll probably, we could have you play in that band program to help get it started. You'll have some experience and you can help coach the younger children. Uh, or younger, the youth, the other youth. Oh, yes, sir. Of course, sir. I love playing the trumpet. Oh, and your cadets. And so anyways, I, they ended up sending an acceptance letter to me. And uh, my, I said, Mom, how are you going to afford this? It was about, at the time, I think about uh, sixteen, fourteen thousand dollars $14,000 a year, which is about $25,000 wow. today yeah. in today's funds. And my mom said, well, I'll figure it out. She went to the bank and she tried to get a loan from the first CIBC and they said no. And so then she went to her and employed. She was in a kind of a minimum wage job and, and doing some secretarial work. And uh, the, the employer said, I'll give you a, a, an employment letter. And uh, my mom said, can you put down, I make $50,000. And he said, well, okay, but what does this mean for me? And my mom said, well, you don't have to pay back the loan. You're just, you know, for the moment, this is what I earn. And they said, okay, you know, you're a good employee. I'll put that down. Thank you very much, Sharon. Uh, good luck. Uh, with, and, you know, my mom went to the bank. She dressed up, you know, as Oprah Winfrey said, dress for success. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you have to dress for success. And, and I showed up or she showed up at the bank and the, the bank manager looked at the, you know, the, you know, she had no debts. So she looked at the employment letter. Of course, Mrs. Ouellette, we'd love to give you a loan. Uh, education is an excellent investment for your son. You know, um, you know, here is the money, you know. Uh, so we were able to pay the, you know, the first installments and she kept going like that. And I'll tell you something, you know, she didn't steal the money. Uh, she paid back every single mm -hmm. of that bank. She scrimped and saved for years, even after I was out of Strathcona and I graduated. And I owe her a debt of gratitude. You're uh, one lucky person. That's all I can say that you had a mother well, like that. Meet some of the greatest people uh, <laughs> who, who kind of, and it actually, it was actually the self awareness because I kind of didn't really believe in myself. And, you know, mm -hmm. I was, you know, I, I remember they were going down the list of people getting marks and, and, you know, oh, Lawrence Perantz, uh, 93%, Sonia Lowe, 92%. Oh, uh, Robert. Uh, you know, 89%, you're third in the class, congratulations. And they go all the way down, you know, Mr. Wilson in social studies, giving everyone's mark, announcing it out. And, you know, I was doing better than the other students who were, you know, the sons and daughters of consul generals from India and England and the sons <laughs> and daughters of oil executives. I could compete with the best. And I was like, wow, I could do this. Um, you know, I'm not so bad. And so I really started studying and, and you know, thinking about my future. It kind of pushed me to get a couple masters. You ended up with a bachelor's degree from the University of Calgary in music, three diplomas from Laval University, master's degrees in music and education, and a PhD in anthropology. Is that about right? Yes. All in French. <laughs> Laval is a French university, only French. And then... Uh, well, of course, we've talked about the military uh, issues. We've talked about being a member of parliament, very active on Aboriginal, on Indigenous issues. 
that's yes. also something that drives you. Yes, I, I you know, I want to, I, I think life is too short and I think I want to make a difference in this world. I think I have the opportunity to help make a difference. And so right now I'm working with the Yellow Quill College, which is this very small post-secondary institution, the only Indigenous controlled post-secondary institution in the province of Manitoba. And uh, we're trying to make it into a university. So we're developing a Bachelor of Education program now for up north for uh, teachers in communities, because some communities actually have no teachers. They might only have educational assistants teaching in the classrooms with maybe one teacher in the entire school supervising a lot of EAs. And so we're trying to create a Bachelor of Education geared towards them, people who are EAs to you know, get them, you know, the not necessary methods, knowledge to be able to, you know, inspire kids to learn, to get the education levels up for a lot of our communities. And uh, so, so that's kind of what I'm working on right now. It's fun, it's uh, interesting, uh, and it's going to be important. Can you tell me what reconciliation means? <laughs> uh, reconciliation. Reconciliation is, I think, being able to listen to each other, but also being able to give space uh, to each other. Um, and I think reconciliation, you know, doesn't just go one way. I think it has to go both ways. Um, I think people be, have to be able to listen on both sides of an issue. Uh, but principally also, I think, you know, mainly non-Indigenous peoples need to listen in this case. Mm -hmm. But I also think no. people need to listen as well. And I think we need I to agree with that. Listen. And we've got, we've got, you know, we've got one sort of big issue. And I know we have thoughts on this because uh, you dealt with it in the parliamentary context. But, but UNDRIP, and I'll just explain that for people who don't live in this world, the United Nations <laughs> uh, resolution on the, or on the rights of Indigenous people. Um, and... And there's a huge debate in this country. I mean, the, the UN has passed it, the province of British Columbia, everybody says, oh, this is wonderful. We're going to recognize and respect Native people and we're going to change our citizenship oath so that we ask newcomers to the country to agree to respect uh, your traditions and, and your history in this country. Um, can we make it a law? Well, I think the intent was to have it pass as a, a law uh, where if, if there was a government uh, piece of legislation that might contradict it, that the government would have the moral obligation to go about changing those laws. Um, you know, I, but this is a, it, I, the act that was actually before Parliament in the last Parliament was a private member's bill. Mm -hmm. it, it has some, in, it has importance, but I think at the end of the day, it actually comes down to, you know, the people who were in charge and who's in power and, and how they view uh, this relationship. But can you, uh, can you use laws to, um, I, I have two sets of questions. One is, can you, uh, can you legally bind people to be more open-minded and respect uh, the, the Aboriginal culture, the Indigenous part of our world? And secondly, can you make the rest of the laws in this country subject to that? Well, I, I'm going to come to a story. So if you think about okay. the Canadian Armed Forces, you know, when I joined the Canadian Armed Forces back in 96, you know, we had major issues after Somalia. Uh, mm -hmm. We had major issues surrounding human rights, how people were treated in the military. I remember on my basic training, you know, it kind of overnight, one day they were able to swear at us 
and physically manhandle us to the right. next day allowing to touch us uh, and not allowed to rip parts of our uniform off. Uh, that's a major change that was went on halfway through my basic training course in 96, 96, 30 Bravo uh, at, uh, at uh, down in St. jean sur richelieu at the mega, the base there. And, um, but you know, it, we knew back then about harassment. We knew back then about sexual harassment in the military. And we were told we had something called sharp training and we were told not to do it. And it's a command and control structure where people have to go through training and, and are mandated by law, by regulation and certain ways to act. And, you know, still today we're dealing with it in the military. So that's 24, 22 years later, and we're still having the same issues. Uh, so legislation will not change people's mentality, but it can over time modify the environment about what is acceptable to say, and it can set up uh, opportunities for conversation. So legislation is important um, because at the end of the day, if it's passed by parliament, you know, that's the most important and symbolic place of Canadian democracy where things are hopefully debated and discussed and and, and there's pushback back and forth on an issue. And if you come back to UNDRIP, uh, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, enshrining it in law, it's, you know, it's important because, you know, it sends a clear message to uh, deputy ministers and people in the Justice Department and other departments. You know, when we are writing leg legislation or regulations or interpreting regulations, how should we be doing this when we're working together? Uh, I get that part of it. The the thing that has raised a lot of questions, particularly for constitutional experts, is what does veto and consent mean? Uh, if there if there are laws coming forward, who gets to say uh, that's not acceptable? Can we put that in the hands of one group? That is an interesting question, and I don't have the answer to it. Yeah, none of us do. I think uh, it's it's a it's a very good question. I know uh, I know the government says that that's not what would happen. That it's uh, you know the courts have been very clear that uh, you know uh, consent does not mean a veto. Um, that projects in the national interest can still move forward. Um, you know whether the courts would keep modify that uh, those rulings over time is another question. Uh, whether it's in the long-term interests of Canada, that is also a good question. But I think at the end of the day, uh, you do need Indigenous peoples and in, in Canadian society working together. Indigenous, we need to be finding ways of, of developing resources together, creating wealth and jobs together. And I think, for instance, what's going on with the XL pipeline is a good thing. Right now, there's Indigenous groups that are buying into the pipeline, becoming part owners. And I think this is like an excellent uh, long-term development because it shows now we have, um, instead of one group taking all the resources and then bringing them to Toronto or Montreal or, you know, the southern end of the, of the country, uh, the resources are then spread evenly, more evenly around and giving more opportunity to people to be employed and to have a better quality of life around this country. Um, so, you know, those are good developments. Now, I know, couldn't I'm agree more on that. I'd like to see more ownership. And we had a conversation with Delbert Wapass on this very issue, which is make us part of the economy, not either the recipients of or excluded from. 
But I also think, like, if you think about uh, Indigenous peoples, I think they have a right to also uh, manage, look after, run their own affairs. They have a right to their own government. Uh, you know, Indigenous peoples don't need people coming in and running, running their education system and telling them, you know, what language they should be speaking. Uh, people are, you know, people in community are going to know, you know, we are going to need English, but we also want to <laughs> know our own language. Uh, you know, we want to be able to teach our own history, but we also want our children to be able to function in main society, mainstream society and be successful at it as well. But, you know, if we have people from outside who are coming in and saying, oh, this is, this is the education system that you need to set up and this is what you need to do and this is how you're going to do it, I don't think it works very well because we've been doing that for 150 years and, you know, we're still arguing about it. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, every... You know, and that's part of what UNDRIP is also about. I know people are stuck up about the veto thing, but there are so many other things about, you know, children and, uh, and, and basic, you know, water rights and, and you know, just, uh, you know, the way that uh, governments are able to set up and run their own affairs within UNDRIP. It's just basic human rights. It's actually a human rights document. Um, you know, if, it's interesting if, if we follow the Canadian Constitution, and, you know, the, you know, our declaration, our Bill of Rights, human rights that we have here in Canada, you know, we probably wouldn't need to have under it. Mm -hmm. We probably wouldn't have the Indian Act. I don't know if you know this, but uh, the Indian Act for a long time, uh, or the uh, human bill, the Canadian Bill of Human, or uh, the Canadian Bill of Rights was not applicable on reserve until yeah. 10 years. Yeah, I understand. And you were part of that, you know, that change in legislation. Yeah. Uh, that is absolutely insane to think that a piece of legislation, like something, the Canadian Constitution had no force of effect on any reserve in Canada, meaning we had no human rights on reserve for over 30 years after the Constitution had been signed into law. Yeah. It's insane to think yeah. that's what it no, we got a long road to hoe here, and I'm very glad that you've decided to stay on it in one way or another. I don't know, are you ever going to run again? Uh, there's a strong possibility you can't get it. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, like you're actually at a certain, you get a certain point and you have to choose like, what do you want to do with your life? And I actually right. really believe public service is extremely important. And, you know, I meet the people in Ottawa, like yourself, who are committed to making Canada a better place. And, and I really think people are actually there for the good reasons. There yeah. are a few that are kind of there for their own reasons, uh, you know, self-grandization and, and some other stuff. But at the end of the day, I really believe people really want to make Canada a better place. You might disagree politically with them. You might want to yell at them. Absolutely. But, you know, when you go to those receptions or, you know, you, you meet each other in the hallways, you can have a good conversation and, and you know, learn about each other and, you know, I, I love going to the prayer breakfasts in the morning with some of the conservatives and having chats with them. And I learned all about Mennonites and who they are. And uh, they taught <laughs> about Indigenous peoples. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. No, I've got to say you were, um, you were a breath of fresh air here. And I hope you do come back. And I hope I'm still here when you do. Okay. Awesome. And we'll, we'll just carry on. We'll, we'll make some stuff happen. Okay. Robert, it was really good to talk to you. Tapwe means truth, until next time. That's a wonderful thing to say. We'll see you soon. How about that?
<laughs> Robert Falcon Willett uh, was a Liberal MP uh, for a while. May come back, may be another one. Thanks for joining us again here on No Nonsense. Uh, there's a guy who actually gives meaning to that. No nonsense. Just say, says it the way it is. Good luck. All the best. Thanks.